Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, February 22nd, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of Lion King shows at Disney's theme parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if it's cold enough outside, the fridge in your garage is keeping things warm. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? This actually happens to my mother in Maynard, Massachusetts. When they got the brand new refrigerator, they moved the old refrigerator to the garage, and this is this is her reserve refrigerator. And <laughs> but again, the garage because it's not insulated the way the rest of the house is. Yeah. It's colder out there, so yes, she will go out and she'll have a you know a container of ice cream that you could pour out. <laughs> Because it's keeping things warm. Yeah. I mean, it it really doesn't work that way. It only becomes a refrigerator again when it's March, April, and it starts to actually get warm outside. And it's, oh, yeah, okay, I'll get back to work. Exactly. It's like, ah, what's the point? Yeah, there we go. So The refrigerator is. It's true. Yeah. How about that? A little science today. That's good. There we go. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Bill F., David G., and Laura B., and longtime subscribers, JNC12. Ahi Bird, and Jared Spig. Jim, these folks are the ones who bought the old robot arms used in Epcot's Some of All Thrills ride and the goats from Disneyland's Big Thunder Ranch to create an efficient yet environmentally friendly tree trimming service in the Orlando area. True story. This would explain that very odd bucket truck that rolled by the other day. <laughs> going it's, it's a twofer thing. It's <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. On a previous show, you and I mentioned that some Disney World hotels like the Grand Floridian had really low occupancy rates and that Disney would be better off financially if they just offered some discounts for those hotels. The reasoning being that people who stay in the hotels tend to spend more money than annual pass holders. And if you're trying to allocate theme park reservations between those groups, you want to allocate more to people in the hotels. So it turns out today, Disney sent out an email with targeted discounts for people, uh, for, for the Grand Floridian, for guests who stayed there in the past. So check your emails, folks, for something from Disney and get in touch with your travel agent, like those at Storybook Destinations, to take advantage of that offer. Also, let us know what kind of rate you got. The stuff that I saw did not include a rate, but I'd love to know what the numbers are for that. So, Jim, okay. does this mean you think that, uh, that Disney's actively looking to discount other hotels to boost occupancy rates a little bit more? Folks who are staying at the flow tend to spend more on merch. They spend more on food. It's a Magic Kingdom resort. So if you work all the Venn diagrams, it actually does, in fact, pay more to have more guests in the flow than it would, say, at the Pop Century or the Caribbean. But I would honestly be surprised if they're having these issues with the flow. And this is during a time when the poly's down. So think about what sort of situation we'd be in right now if the poly were up. Oh yeah, and you think about think about too the uh, the contemporary is going to be closed for the summer, right? Yeah. So the the two hundred bucks a night off of the rack rates for the Grand Flow and get occupancy up. That's better than let's put it this way: five hundred dollars a night at the Grand Flow is more money to Disney than two hundred dollars a night at Pop Century. Right? There we go. There we go. Yeah. But I'm I'm sorry sense. when you you factor in the poly's down, the contemporary is about to go down. Len, isn't this sort of the theme park equivalent of th- three card Monty? <laughs> Yeah, moving people around. There we go. That's the other thing that I've been telling people. Like Disney hasn't canceled yet reservations for summer for Port Orleans Riverside. Mm-hmm. But there's a chance that it's 
not going to be open, right? Because it depends on a lot of external factors. Okay. And so I'm getting a lot of email from people saying, you know, what do I, what's Disney going to do if they don't open Port Orleans Riverside? And I've got these reservations. And I'm mm-hmm. like, don't worry. They're going to move you somewhere that's equivalent or better. Oh, and the, the, the hint that I'm telling people is mm-hmm. you don't have to accept the first offer, mm-hmm. right? If Disney says, look, we're going to move you to Coronado Springs, mm-hmm. you could always say that I don't think that's my kind of resort. Mm-hmm. What else do you have? And see what they come back with. And let them give you a couple of choices and then pick the best one because there's a chance that you can get an upgrade to a deluxe. Ooh, okay. Listen to what Mr. Test is saying here, folks. Could <laughs> yeah, be so that's what I'm telling people. Like, don't, don't accept the first offer. See what else they come back with. You know? There we go. Also, Jim, in, uh, in related news, uh, Disney released on this Tuesday, this past Tuesday, um, Disney Park Pass reservations through January of 2023. So it looks like, Jim, that the park reservation system is going to be around for at least the next couple of years. What's driving that? Disney is still dealing with an uncertain situation. I mean, we had Dr. Fauci talking about, okay, we're talking more about the summer. We had President Biden talking about how we are going to have enough to vaccinate every American citizen by the mm-hmm. middle of the summer. But yeah. but then actually getting the vaccinators, the people in place to do that. Right. And we've, we've actually talked about this. We said this on a previous show that at some point mm-hmm. fairly quickly, like I think in March, mm-hmm. the situation is going to go from we don't have enough vaccine mm-hmm. to we don't have enough people to administer the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then you, you factor in situations like everyone who's in Texas right now dealing with the, the yeah. water shortage and the power shortage. But totally secondary to this is the fact that they had to shut down basically that state's entire vaccine program because it's like, again, you know, some of these versions of the vaccine have to be kept super cold, which isn't all that hard to do right now. <laughs> Even colder than that, they mean. Yeah. There we go. But it's just it's one of these things where it's like you can't if people can't drive safely on the roads, they can't staff the vaccinating point. People exactly. can't get there. So that slows down the process there as well. And Texas is such a big state that you could be hours away from oh, yeah. your nearest vaccination sites. So getting out on the roads in the middle of a storm is not, no, uh, no. Is not safe in and of itself. Not a good thing. Okay. So uh, the other thing I thought about the Park Pass system extending into 2023, mm-hmm. and I haven't heard this officially confirmed, mm-hmm. not that I expect to, but Disney's got to be using the park reservation system to adjust staffing levels at the parks, right? Well, They've got to be able to, yeah. yeah, if they're not, I would be... I'd be moderately surprised, mm-hmm. right? I think I think one of the big benefits to the park pass system is that it should let Disney do do better staffing. So if they're not taking advantage of that, mm-hmm. I'd be surprised. And that's one of the reasons why I think it might continue. That if Disney sees like we can remove X amount of dollars of waste mm-hmm. in staffing by having the park reservation system in place, they're going to keep it in place. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, if you're in a situation where you know exactly how many people are going to be showing up that day, you can staff that much more effectively. You know how much food to buy. I mean, you know know a lot of things. Yeah, you know a lot more, yeah. Yeah. I think it makes complete sense. But January of 2023, wow. Yeah. Now, that could be because the... Let's say that you arrive on December 31st, 2022, and you buy a 10-day ticket. Mm -hmm. Maybe Disney's thinking that you feel the need to do park reservations for the entire length of your trip, and that's why it went into January. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we'll see. I was talking with somebody in the know at Disney, and they were pointing out that because of domestic travel, we we tend to focus on what's going on in the States and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But until international travel back to the Walt Disney World Resort 
gets back to normal levels. And we're talking about situations like the folks who come over from the UK and they don't yeah. do the American week to 10 day trip to Orlando. They're no, it's two weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Exactly. That so much of the staffing when it comes to the resorts, you know, to the parks and that sort of thing, they're going to remain at the minimal level. Because again, until the international travel starts to come back, it's just that this new world financial model just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. And uh, I think we'll see as um, the UK is actually doing pretty well with its vaccination. I thought they were like at a third. They were. I mean, smaller country but they're and more compact, mm -hmm. but they're going to get done before the United States. There may be a chance then that once they complete their vaccination program, that travel will resume. So that could be early midsummer. That would be great. But they were also the folks who stomped on the brakes when they were suddenly dealing with variants. And it just right. sort of like, true. get yeah. on the line. So. I mean, the big thing with variants, too, that once we get everybody uh, vaccinated, mm -hmm. that the effect of the variants will also be muted. Not as much as the original one, but still. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's we're in February now. So they start actually talking about next year's cold and flu season in October. As in guessing what it is that the vaccine for the coming year needs to be. And Yep. Uh, and we'll do the same thing for, for, the, for the virus as well. Yeah. There we go. So. All right, Jim, let's do some listener questions. Uh, this one came in from Kimmy R., mm -hmm. In a recent show, you mentioned how in your most recent unofficial guides, you're faced uh, with the reality of trying to decide if a trip is worth it based on some things not being offered. Mm -hmm. We're going to Walt Disney World, and it's not our first nor our last trip. I'm struggling with the park reservation system. In your opinion, is it worth it to make a reservation for the studios? We'll have a 15-month-old, and I will be seven months pregnant and really only able to walk around Galaxy's Edge, ride Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and maybe Midway Mania. If we got there at opening, we could feasibly have it finished in an hour or so, thus wasting half a day that we could be at a different park. All right. So the question is, this, should, should we make a reservation for that? Here's the thing, too. I'm not entirely sure about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway mm -hmm. for someone who's seven months pregnant. The reason is, and I know this is going to, I'm going to sound drunk when I say this, mm -hmm. but there's a Mamba section in Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway where you're kind of like moved around mm -hmm. rapidly from side to side. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure I would go on that if I was seven months pregnant. So really, it might be just sort of walking around Galaxy's Edge and maybe Midway Mania. I mean, I would say if that's the case, no, I wouldn't make a reservation for the studios. I think you might enjoy Epcot or Magic Kingdom a little bit more. You remember when Michelle was seven months pregnant and any amount of walking was an issue. Well, but she can get, a, she can get a, uh, an ECV. That's a good point. Right? There's no, no, nobody says she has to walk. No, no, no. But wouldn't that then be an interesting day to say, do a water park? Oh, water park or the pool. Yeah. Get off your feet. Oh, that's a great idea, Jim. Yeah. You've got a future in this business, I think. Yeah. Give me, try a water park and let us know how it goes. On the other hand, go back to the get a hotel rest and then maybe a leisurely afternoon at Disney Springs. But again, that's a lot of walking as well. That's true. No, I like the water park idea. I think that's fantastic. Okay. Get off your feet, float around for a little bit, get a little bit of a tan. Nothing wrong with that. But Kimmy, comfortable shoes. Really comfortable shoes. Okay. So Kimmy says she's staying at the Contemporary and it'll be there in early May. Oh, yeah. So the uh, at least one water park will be open in May. Yeah. Yeah, Kimmy, try that. Well, let's know how it goes. Awesome. And thanks for the question. All right. Here's another one. On a recent show, Jim, you and I answered a question about best outdoor dining venues. Mm -hmm. And Kepi wrote in to say, uh, this was super helpful. Our family is planning a May trip, and we're hesitant to eat indoors quite yet. So this gives us some options. Thanks. That's fabulous. Mm, glad to help. I think we're we, we don't really do a whole lot of trip planning questions on here, but I'm I'm happy to answer them. It's kind of kind of what I do. Okay. All right, Jim. Here's a question for you from Christopher. 
With the opening of the new Star Wars trading post in the old Rainforest Cafe building at Downtown Disney and Disneyland, I'd love to hear your take on the future of that portion of Downtown Disney, which was closed in anticipation of the now-canceled hotel project. Is the Star Wars trading post meant to be temporary, or are there any plans for the ESPN Zone building or the movie theaters? So, Jim? This is our second Star Wars trading post in Downtown Disney Anaheim, because remember, the Wonderland Gallery mm -hmm. overnight one night, you know, the, all of the art pieces and such got pulled down and they moved the Star Wars merch in there. Uh, I'm pleased to report the Wonderland Gallery is back in business and we have this use of the old Rainforest Cafe in Anaheim. I was talking with folks tied to the Disneyland Resort right now and they are breathing a sigh of relief given the, the California Adventure food event is just over the horizon. But yeah, this hotel would have been under construction at this point had COVID not come over the horizon. The only thing for certain that's going forward at the Disneyland Resort these days is the Avengers Campus, because that was 90% completed uh, mm -hmm. when COVID came down. Uh, likewise, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, the clone that's being built out in Toontown. Everything else is on hold till Disney deals with all of its legacy pass holders and sorts out its whatever is going to be replacing Disneyland's annual pass program. And only when that resort is fully back up and running and there were guests staying in Paradise Pier and the Grand mm -hmm. Californian and the Disneyland Hotel and there's actual need for a, you know, a fourth on-site hotel, that's when... The key will get turned on this, but... That's a ways away is what you're saying. Oh, oh ways, a ways, a ways, so... Okay, so nothing uh, nothing imminent. No, no. And it means walking through this portion of downtown Disney. And you will see things like the ESPN zone repurposed for cast member-only merchandise events where they're trying to clean out inventory. Right, break rooms, training, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. that's it exactly. Okay. And, and same thing with the AMC across the way. It's sort of like a smile with a couple of teeth missing, but what are you going to do? It's just, you know, this yeah. is the world we live in, at least for the next couple of years. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. All right, thanks for that, Jim. Mm -hmm. Our friend Scott was in Epcot to buy some merchandise earlier this week, and he got this survey, Jim. The first couple of questions are interesting because mm -hmm. although ostensibly the survey was about buying merchandise in Epcot, the first set of questions were all about characters, rides, an attraction. So the, uh, the first question was, please rate each of the following in regards to your visit to Epcot. And the first category is character experiences, excluding character dining experiences or character cavalcades. So were they excellent, very good, good, just okay, poor, or did you not experience them? Second question was atmosphere entertainment. Performances such as street theater, musical groups, bands, or variety acts performing either on stage or off stage that is seen outdoors, excluding character settings, including American Gardens Theater and World Showcase. That sounds like a legal brief. Like, here's what we mean by atmosphere entertainment, right? This and this you could choose everything between the eraser and the pencil. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what, what atmosphere entertainment is there in, in Epcot that's not a cavalcade, right? I guess it's the, the I mean, the bands in Mexico are, uh, are performing it. The, uh, the next one is, uh, please write each of the following, character cavalcades or processions, a procession of characters and performers along a given route. And the last one was rides and attractions, excluding all other experiences previously rated, which is fine. All right, so that's, that's that. But then the next set of questions were all about the use of 
mobile checkout and what Scott thought about it. So the first question was, you went to Mouse Gear. Mm-hmm. During your visit to Mouse Gear, did you use the mobile checkout feature in, My Disney, in the My Disney Experience app? And he answered yes. And so there were a, f- a bunch of follow-up questions on that. How did you first learn about mobile checkout in the My Disney Experience app? And here, the answer that was given was uh, physical signage at Mouse Gear. And then, uh, this is what I like. <laughs> when, when during your shopping experience at Mouse Gear, did you decide to use the mobile checkout feature? And this is kind of funny because Scott noted, when I saw the length of the line at <laughs> the cash register. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, brother. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, and then the last question was, uh, last question that, that we want to talk about here is, how did using the mobile checkout feature impact your shopping experience at Mouse Gear on your visit? And Scott mentioned that it was a very positive impact. So, Jim, it's not a secret that mobile payments in general are coming to my Disney experience. I mm-hmm. think Disney accidentally released some artwork on their website that showed that it's sort of like a you know use your phone for payments mm-hmm. throughout the Walt Disney World Resort. Is this one of those surveys like we're just we're just doing a checkpoint right here to make sure everyone's still okay with it? Is that what this is for? Like any program, you have various levels of management that have to sign off on this. And they obviously want to make retail as easy as possible in, in right. you know our pandemic time. So this is one of those surveys that you actually take to managers and show them the results. Like, look, they were happy. They saw the line, but they still bought stuff. You know, it's right. like, we should do more of this. So it's more of a reassure those people who wear ties. Look, look, it's, it's working. We should roll this out other places at the resort. So you put it in some place like Mouse Gear because we're dealing with the temporary Mouse Gear. So it's it's relatively easy to get into that space and do this and get some results and then have the numbers to say we should roll this out elsewhere. It's the concern about it's going to be kind of a generational thing. Yeah. There are folks who are quite comfortable living all of their life on their phone. So it's like, yes, I will absolutely do this. Certain older folks like myself, maybe not as enthusiastic, but on the other hand, if I'm looking at a line with 10 people in it, it's like, absolutely. How do I do this? Yeah, break out the phone. Yeah. That, I would there use it if it, was a, if it was a clear time-saving thing. I'm mm-hmm. not worried about the technology or you know privacy or anything like that in that particular context. it's For me, it's just like, if I don't have any questions and I just want to get this thing and go, I don't need to sit in a line if I can do mobile ordering. Well, it's it's worth noting here his, his comment as well. I was able to scan my items in seconds, whereas the line was around 10 people long. Especially during COVID, I wanted to limit my time in line as much as possible. A cast member held up a barcode for me to sign, and then she helped me bag my items. So it's like, wow. That's fantastic. That's yeah. the way to do it. There we go. I can't think of a, a single shopping experience that I've done recently that involved actually standing in line and waiting at a cashier other than like, you know, for coffee or something. Mm-hmm. But like when I go to the grocery store, it's all self, it's all, not only is it self-checkout, but I use an app for it now. And, you know, when you go to Target, it's all self-checkout now. So yeah, I can, I can totally see Disney doing this. It would make it more efficient and, you know, save time in line. And if everyone's happier with that, then I'm, I'm all about it. There we go. All right, Jim, um, I want to do a quick talk on a patent that Disney recently, a patent application that Disney recently filed. It's called Park Ride with Weight Proportional Water Braking. And what it is, it shows, is a ride vehicle that's on a roller coaster track, but with springs where the weight of the vehicle, as it gets heavier, the springs get pushed down a little bit more, 
And all of this is under some level of water so that as the track gets pushed down, more water is exposed to the ride vehicle, thus slowing it down. But Jim, here's my question. What ride is this for? I literally just ordered a copy of Adventures in Amity, Tales of the Jaws ride by Dustin McNeil. They actually talk about the 1990 version of the Jaws ride that only ran for a couple of months where they shut that down. And then by 93, they had to do this whole redesign of the ride and changed out how the sharks were done and all that. Because while they were building the ride, they never accounted for the force of the water. Oh, yeah. If you're trying to move fast enough through water, it's like it's like trying to uh, move through dirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, water is very water's got a very high viscosity, right? If you're trying to move fast enough, yeah. And then when you factor in the various sharks that would come surging up out of the water to attack the boat and and that sort of thing, the, the physics from the the force of the water along with yeah. the shark. I mean, it, it's a fascinating story. Well worth reading. On the other hand, in this case. The artwork toward the back of the vehicle, you know, you see the equivalent of stacks for an engine. Um, That's what I was thinking. What is that? I mean, why would they put that there? This looks very jungle cruisy toward the back. But what confuses me is there is a redo of Splash Mountain coming. In fact, didn't they just file permits for work at Walt Disney World this week? Oh, I didn't see the uh, the permits. Oh, so you think this is Splash related? I would honestly not be surprised given, you know, that from day one with Splash Mountain, remember, you know, Splash Mountain was initially supposed to open in 88 and got postponed till the summer of 89, largely because they found that the boats were too heavy and would flood when they hit the bottom. So they had to do a late in the game redesign again. Uh, for the, the exact so you think, so we haven't talked about this, but you think the the Splash Mountain Redo will include new new boats, new ride vehicles? I wouldn't be surprised if they made some adjustments. I mean, if you look at Disneyland versus Walt Disney World, we have you know entirely different log setups. We have the two side by side as opposed to the log where people sit back to back. The problem is the numbers that they're working with and the timeline keeps changing. I'm getting a little concerned that the elaborate redo that you and I talked about almost a year ago is now coming under the knife. And something like this, where they're talking about a, a different sort of braking system that actually uses the force of the water to slow mm. down the vehicle. It's worth noting about the Princess and the Frog ride. The belief is that the gift shop in the, the exit area is not just going to sell lots of Lewis plush. It's also going to sell the Tiana princess dresses. Sure. Of course. Why wouldn't it? Yeah. But here's the thing, Len. Okay. If you paid upwards of 70, 80, $90 for a Tiana outfit for your daughter to wear, and then she climbs in the boat and then it reaches the bottom of the hill and she steps out of the boat soaked. You sell it after the boat ride. You put it in the gift shop after the ride. But you cannot count on that. You cannot count on little girls not right. showing up dressed as Tiana to get her. And evidently, this is a concern that's now being addressed. Because the, the weird thing is, remember, Tokyo Disneyland actually has the ability to turn down the water effects. Stateside, yeah. not so much. I think uh, Tiana-themed towels, <laughs> like big, thick, plush, cotton, absorbent towels in the gift shop would be the way to go here. That's a great idea, Len. Why don't they sell towels? I do not know what to tell you. All right. We should, we should examine this more. There we go. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history of the Lion King in Disney's theme parks. We'll be right back. 
feeling a little stressed and anxious these days? Gee, I can't understand why. Maybe it's time you gave BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp isn't self-help, and it isn't a crisis line either. It is professional counseling, which allows you from the safety, comfort, and convenience of your own home to connect with licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, grief, family counseling, relationships, and anger. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you two can then start communicating in under 24 hours. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video and phone sessions. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. And speaking of available, this service is available to clients worldwide. In fact, so many people have begun using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So why not start living a happier life today? As a listener to this podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Disney Dish. We know that Festival of Lion King is coming back in a modified form Mm -hmm. at the Animal Kingdom later this summer. And when you and I were talking about this, we thought it'd be interesting to talk about the history of the Lion King itself Mm -hmm. in the Disney parks. Because it was one of those things where I think Disney knew as soon as the film came out that they wanted something in the parks, which is different than how it normally happens, right? Yes. And in fact, I was filling out my run of, of old Disneyland lines. And I recently came across an issue from 1977, Len, where they, they're mm-hmm. talking about the a program at the Disneyland Park that used to be called I Have an Idea. Every year, the Disneyland uh, Park would allow cast members to submit ideas about how to improve operational issues at the park, how to improve safety. And they then take all of these suggestions in. And those that the park actually decided to adopt, folks would receive a commemorative plaque and a $50 check. I got this issue from the Disneyland of 77, and they, they gave the rules going into the next edition of I Have an Idea. And one of the things said, going into the next competition, please don't suggest that WED create a ride or attraction for the park based on any film that Walt Disney Productions has released over the last three to five years. The Imagineers prefer to work off of already proven properties. And it, and it takes more than five years to demonstrate that a, uh, a film is successful. Wow, that's, that's definitely taking the long-term view, right? Who's working for WED at this point? You know, we have Mark Davis is just finishing up his career, but we still got Claude Coates in the building, John Hentz, yep. Bill Justice. These are guys who actually went to work for Walt Disney Animation Studios in the 1930s and the 1940s, and eventually Walt sort of handpicked them to come over from the Imagination Studio to come work in the parks in the 50s and the Mm -hmm. 60s. As far as these guys were concerned, the really good Disney animated films, the ones that were worthy of a ride show and attraction to the parks, were the films that they themselves worked on back at the Animation Studio in 71, We still got a Mr. Toad for the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. And The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad is a lesser Disney animated feature. Likewise, Alice in Wonder, Walt himself didn't like the 51 version, but we still got Mad Tea Party at the Magic Kingdom. And the only time that these guys allowed a nod to a relatively recent Disney animated feature was inside the Mickey Mouse Review, where if you look down into the animatronic orchestra, you got Baloo, King Louie, and Ka from Jungle Book, which had come out in 67. And Mm -hmm. you also got Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, and Tigger 
And that was the first feature at Winnie the Pooh and the Hunt Street came out in 66. If you're actually watching the show, the most recent song was All in a Golden Afternoon, and that was from Disney's animated Alice in Wonderland, which came out in 51, 20 years before the Magic Kingdom opened. These guys really made it about the films they worked on without really paying attention to the fact that what the audience was looking for was more recent hit films. In 1964, we had Mary Poppins come out. Disney Mm -hmm. had never had a hit bigger than that, and yet the only time you get anything of that is in the exit movie music for the theater. There's a little taste of supercalifragilistic. Yeah, but nothing nothing, nothing that goes immediately into the park. Yeah, they paid so much attention to what was going into the show. They ignore the physical setup of the theater, and the Fantasyland Theater seats 500 people. But Mm -hmm. when the Mickey Mouse Review first opened in October of 71, they discovered to their horror that the lobby only held 300 people. (laughs) So it was like right from the get-go, you had the show that at any one show could only play three-fifths capacity. So it never, ever made its numbers. And and that was just simply, you know, uh, you know, somebody just wasn't paying attention when they put together the blueprints. They were doing social distancing back before social distancing was a thing. <laughs> Look, you, everyone gets a seat and a half. There we go. There we go. This is one of the main reasons that Biggie Mouse Review had a relatively short run at the Magic Kingdom. Open again, October of 71. It was closed by September of 1980. Only ran in Disney's first Florida theme park for eight years, 11 months, and 13 days. Uh, Mickey Mouse Rue gets packed up, sent to Japan. It's an opening day attraction at Tokyo Disneyland, which opens in April of 83. And it has a run at that theme park, three times the run that it had at Walt Disney World. It, it ran wow. for 26 years. Let's jump ahead now to Michael Eisner coming through the door September of 84. Michael came from Paramount. And, you know, this whole notion of we have to wait three to five years to for a film to prove itself before we bring it into the parks. And it's like, no, no. That, that, First question is why. Yes, yeah. yes. That's <laughs> it. Exactly. It's no, we have hit films. Why is this not in the park immediately? Which brings us to Little Mermaid. Uh, that opens the theaters November of 89. It's the Walt Disney Animation Studios' first real brand new hit on Eisner's watch, and by January of 1990, three months after, it's you know come out in theaters and being nominated for Academy Awards. And the sort of Michael's already nudging the manager, and he's like, "Look, I need a little Little Mermaid, right? You guys need to work on this." But given the way Imagineering works, it's like right. We we talked about this on a, on a recent show, right? The uh, that it just it didn't happen. But again, it was the process. Like first, there's a meeting, and then after the meeting, there's concept art, and then there were color studies to support the concept art, and then there are brown foam models that, that first need to be carved, and then need to be painted, and, and a whole year goes by before the Imagineers can finally bring Eisner in and present their their wonderful, elaborate Little Mermaid ride, which had become so elaborate, so huge at this point, and more to the yeah. point, so expensive. It was like eh. you know, a lot of folks at the stateside parks, it's like. That would be two to three years of my expansion, you know, enhancement budget, just all right. in one attraction. And so this is why now when when Disney or Pixar, when they're doing films, mm-hmm. as soon as they start the film process, there's someone concurrently developing a theme park ride idea. For the longest time at Pixar, that was Roger Gould. He was actually their liaison for Pixar. This film is in the works. Let me talk with Imagineering. Let me keep the lines of communication open. You know, yeah. here's a sequence from the film we want you guys to take a look at. I mean, yeah, that's in place now. But well, yeah, back then, back then it took it took them a, a year to get the first draft of the ride ready. And, and 
which is crazy, right? That's exactly what Eisner's thinking. It's like, here he is in his meeting in January of 1991 where the manager is just saying, here it is. It's wonderful, isn't it? And, and we can have this open in just three years. And he's like, oh. Yeah. Just sort of like, all right, yes, it's wonderful. And yes, let's think about this for phase two of Euro Disneyland. And that ride, which got proposed in January of 1991, didn't actually, you know, a variation, I mind you, but it didn't actually open at DCA till 20 years later in, in May oh. of 2011. But that, that's another story. But all right, so Eisner just like, okay, fine. Let's get this moving forward. But isn't there a way we can do this faster? I mean, do they have to be animatronics? Couldn't we do something cheaper like, say, puppets? And that's what Eisner's executive assistant took out of that meeting. It's like, well, the Imagineers are continuing on their, their mermaid ride. Somebody in this giant company full of talented people has to come up with an idea for a Little Mermaid show that involves puppets, something that can be thrown together quickly. Which brings us to Fran Soder, uh, his show director that had been hired by Walt Disney's Entertainment Department, October of 1990. And it's on his desk that eventually Eisner wants a Little Mermaid show featuring puppets. Memo, lands. And now Fran knows diddly about puppets, but he's a smart guy, and he knows who to reach out to, and that's Chuck Fawcett, the founder of Animax Design, which is a puppet workshop in Nashville, Tennessee. And Fawcett had a interesting history. He worked on the international editions of Sesame Street, so he had good practical experience when it came to puppets. So, you know, the two of them meet, and in one year's time limit. They are able to get the Voyage of the Little Mermaid up and running. And it, it entirely built around puppets. It's up and running by January 7th, 1992. And as we've talked about, you know, it was only designed to run for 18 months, ran for 18 years, only got yep. shut down due to COVID just last year. Soder and Fawcett had pulled off what the Imagineers couldn't. They got a Little Mermaid show up out of the ground in one year's time. It was affordable, and it was done in such a way it could be presented three times an hour. A Voyage of Little Mermaid was only 17 minutes long, so they could bump lots of groups through the show. And no good deed goes unpunished, you know. And so it's like, since Fran and Chuck had delivered on the, the Little Mermaid project, word came down from on high that Eisner mm -hmm. now wanted them to do the exact same thing for The Lion King. Only, you, you got to remember, with Voyage of the Little Mermaid, the movie had been out in theaters 15 months earlier. The VHS had been on sale since February of 1990. All right, so when Fran and, and Chuck began working on the show, they knew that, okay, everyone loved Ursula, so it makes sense for us to build a 12-foot-tall, 10-foot-wide Ursula puppet because we want that character big in the show. We also know what the hit songs are. And because production of The Little Mermaid has wrapped, it's relatively easy for us to reach out to Parrot Carol and bring her in. Hey, we need some different dialogue. You need something different from what you recorded for the film. Whereas with The Legend of the Lion King show, Len, mm -hmm. Eisner wanted this to open at the Magic Kingdom on the exact same day that The Lion King opened in theaters, which was June 24th, 1994. Okay. So Soder and Fawcett are flying blind here. The film isn't even finished at this point, so they don't know advance which songs are the breakout songs, which is you know, 
who's the favorite <laughs> character? Sure, Elton John. Sure, I mean Elton John's going to make it. Sure, yeah, he's going to fine. You know. So they're flat out guessing as they go along here, and all they know at this point is just like the Little Mermaid, it has to be seventeen minutes long, so they can do three shows an hour. Okay. Because it's going to be staged in the old Mickey Mouse Theater, which again, had with its 500 seats. Oh, by the way, <laughs> in the interim, the Imagineers have addressed the lobby. So now it, 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 it you know, fits more than 300 guests. You know, so they know that they have to build puppets that are huge because they have to be seen from the back of the theater. Yeah, the, maybe the back rows are quite a distance from the, from the stage itself. Okay, all right. Okay, but again, remember... Three shows every hour, and there are days during the holidays and the summer months when Legend of the Lion King is going to be presented more than 30 times a day. It's a lot of puppeteering. A lot of puppeteers, all right? In fact, in order to meet that schedule, they had eight separate teams of puppeteers. And the puppets had to be ridiculously sturdy because they had to stand up to the pounding. So you're getting ready to prep your show, and you don't have the luxury that you had with Voyage of the Little Mermaid. You can't bring Pat Carroll back to record Ursula's dialogue. Oh, for that matter, and you got to remember that when they did Voyage of the Little Mermaid, they also brought back Samuel Wright, the voice of Sebastian. They brought back Kenneth Mars. They brought back Patty Edwards. They even brought back Frank Welker, who who, who barked as the sheepdog Max. And it's like, we, <laughs> we need different barks, you know? That's that's some accuracy right there. There we go. But it's just in this case, it's like they are still working on the Lion King. So that's like Oh, so no one's available. Well, that's they could get one. They could get one person. They could get Robert Guillaume. Oh, he's living off of his Benson uh, royalties. It's fine. But it also the point they reach out to Robert Guillaume, he is within inches of quitting the Lion King. Really? Oh yeah. Well, it, it turns out Rob Minkoff and Roger Allers, the directors of, of the animated version of Lion King. Rafiki was the toughest character for them because they could never quite get a handle on who he was because he had a certain part to carry in the story, mm-hmm. but they could never get the tone right. And so they kept calling him back in like every six weeks, three months to come in and record an entirely different set of dialogue for Rafiki because they had <sighs> they had a new take. And so, you know, it wasn't till they are maybe six months out from release when they finally realized, oh, that's it. He's he, this wise old shaman is crazy. <laughs> Come back in. We figured out he's crazy. So in the same window of time, here's Fran and here's Chuck. And it's like, we need to get Robert Gale and the thing. And it's like, you know, just sort of like not a happy man in a booth. All right. But they, they get everything they need. The show was supposed to open on the same day, Lion King, June 24th, uh, 1994. Given the situation, they missed their deadline, but only by two weeks. Oh. They had the show open by July 8th. Of that same year, just like The Little Mermaid, only designed to run 18 months, wound up running for eight years and five months, closing on February 23rd, 2002, uh, to make way for Mickey's PhilharMagic. But Len, in that eight years, they did Mm -hmm. 27,000 performances. Wow. So counting, uh, you know, regular maintenance and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, that's nine shows a day. Now, I want to point out. Wow. You can go on YouTube right now. The one very enterprising cast member shot this show from the pit. And you you can see a large portion of The Legend of the Lion King from the floor of the theater. And you can see, for example, how it took two puppeteers at any one time to do Young Simba, or for that matter, when they did Adult Simba, it's five people moving a giant rig to move this seven-foot-tall puppet. 
if you, you want an insider view that you've never gotten before this show, check out that video. Just Google Legend of the Lion King backstage or behind the scenes. And it is a wonderful insight into the show. More to the point, it is a real tribute to, again, those eight teams of puppeteers who kept that show running for those 27,000 performances. Because you watch them work and it looks like every show was a Herculean effort. And the fact that they wow. did three of these an hour, Len. That's amazing. I'm going to go back onto YouTube just so I can watch the show again. Because there's parts of it I don't remember now, like how big the... The puppets were. Oh, the, the puppets were huge. I get it, but got to remember they also, you know, the fact that it, they were able to pull it together with finished footage from the actual film, which they got wet, you know, just sort of like, hey, it <laughs> still the, smells like paint. There we go. Put it up. <laughs> Fran would go on to stage Hunchback of Notre Dame show at Disney MGM that ran for a good portion of the 90s. And would then go on to be in charge of the Long Beach Opera Company and do professional productions of like Stephen Sondheim's Follies and shows like that. So, oh wow, good practice. I just love the fact that you know, hey, you delivered the Little Mermaid show, great. Okay, now do Lion King, shorter time, shorter schedule, and by the way, open on the same day. But they both ran for a super long time, so what they did must have been good. Damn. All right, I'm going to go out uh, on YouTube, and I think all of our listeners should as well. Let's go out and. Uh, and watch it and see what we remember from the original okay. uh, Lion King show. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the original ideas for Epcot's Transportation Pavilion. And after that, I think it might be the single best podcast episode we've ever done. Jim and I present the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script with real actors, music, and special effects. That should be out this week as well, only at Disney Dish. That's bandcamp.com. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenatoringplans.com. On next week's show, Jim talks about the history of the Disney dream and the Disney fantasy cruise ships. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be looking for body control, synchronization, and no touches on the standing foals when he judges the Frontier City Spirit Fest 2021 Cheer and Dance Championships on Saturday, April 3rd, 2021, at the Oklahoma City Convention Center in beautiful downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.